Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the SciBeat Podcast, where your host, award-winning author and cybercrime journalist, Deb Radcliffe, interviews hackers, coders, intelligence experts, agents, officers, cybersecurity pros, and other interesting harbingers, heroes, and warriors. These conversations are sure to get you thinking. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Deb Radcliffe, host of SciBeats. We hope you enjoy this podcast at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Today, we're speaking with Leslie Carhart, Director of ICS Cybersecurity Incident Response at Dracos. We met at the RSA Security Conference this past June, and I was impressed with her background. Leslie spent 15 years applying their technical skills at the Air Force Reserve while also working as security incident response team lead at Motorola Solutions and at Dragos. As director of incident response at Dragos, Leslie coordinates large-scale incident response efforts for clients across industrial verticals. In June, Leslie presented at RSA and was recognized by CRN as one of the top 10 women making a difference in cybersecurity. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. I am always interested in people who have taken roundabout and unusual career paths in cybersecurity, and you definitely fit that description. Um, My first question, let's just dive right into some of your personal background, okay? My first question is, as a person familiar with Hacker Handles, me, um, I love your handle. Can you tell us how you came about having Hacks for Pancakes as your handle? Yeah, sure. It's a it's a bit of self-deprecating humor. I do a lot of volunteer work and community work, and uh, I'm not really a commercial speaker. I, I, I do community and educational and university talks, things like that. So it's it's kind of the uh, tech equivalent of, of moves couches for pizza, but... Uh, you know, I, I love what I do. I love what I do and I love helping people. So it's just a little little joke. If you can't laugh at yourself, then uh, where, where would you be, right? I love that. We'll get into a little bit more of your vol- volunteer work later in this interview. My next question is martial arts. You have three different martial arts categories you participate in. And what is your belt level? Yeah, I, I hold third degree black belts in Taekwondo and in uh, Tengsudo, uh, which is a, a form of Korean karate. And then I also study Non, non-ranked things, uh, I study Arnis or Eskrima, and I, I study uh, Shaolin Kung Fu. Okay, those last two I've never heard of before. The rest I have. Why did you get into martial arts, and what does it do for you? Yeah, so I'm always taken back. I, I love to read, and I'm always taken back to Sherlock Holmes and uh in in the Sherlock Holmes books and expanded fan fiction, extended universe, uh, Sherlock always boxed and and fought to try to, um, you know, he's much smarter than all of us, but to get his mind off of all the things that he was constantly thinking about. And I think for anybody whose brain is always going and always involved in these rabbit holes of of what's going on in the world and what can go wrong and constantly thinking of vulnerabilities and and worst possible outcomes, having some kind of outlet where your mind is fully occupied on doing something that requires your for a full mental and physical concentration is really, really important. It's good stress relief and it's good for your mental health in general. 
So it's a form of meditation, but also physical practice for you. It is. It keeps you in shape, but it's also a kind of meditation. And there's lots of different things out there. Some people run, some people do, you know, CrossFit or weightlifting. Other people do art or music or yoga, and they're all totally valid. It's very important, though, to have that work-life balance and that mental health break in your life to, to stay healthy when you're doing work where you're constantly thinking about what could go catastrophically wrong and what really evil people are doing in the world. I've been told that I always think about evil people too much and that most people are good. Uh, for me, my mine is ocean swimming. You cannot be thinking about something else when you've got currents and sharks and things to worry about. So I love ocean swimming because if I'm not focused, I could get hurt out there. So it, it draws my focus. And I'm guessing you have a lot of that with the martial arts as well. Yeah, you don't want to get you. Do, you never want to get punched in the face. So a good incentive to. It's same with avoiding sharks. I think. <laughs> you know, you you want to focus your attention on something other than your daily problems and concerns. Correct. Um, so this makes me want to be on your team if the world goes all to hell. Uh, between your martial arts skills and your competitive marksmanship with pistols. Can you tell us a little bit how you got into that and where you compete and what that's like? Because most of us don't understand that world at all. Yeah, sure. I, I've been uh, doing competitive shooting and just shooting for fun since I was around nine, 10 years old. Um, so for a, for a long time, and I do kind of Olympic style, what we call bullseye marksmanship with pistols. So um uh, you know, it's, it's smaller caliber pistols that are usually long barreled and they kind of look like what you see in, in the Olympic Games. Um, mm -hmm. And you're shooting from a very long way, very slowly to, to hit a, a very tiny target. So again, it's that mental concentration of trying to focus your mind and your attention and kind of be meditating on something other than what's going on in your mind. And it's challenging and it's fun. And um, I, I do some archery as well. So just those types of things that take your, your focus away from what you're thinking. Um, if I just sit in front of my computer and I'm on YouTube, I'll just spiral into, into one problem or another. So I, I love it. Where do you compete? Yeah, so there's, there's regional and state competitions. There's local stuff as well. Um, um, I actually started a gun club for, for people who are more nerdy and less uh, intense about, about shooting, who just wanted to have a good time and learn. So mm -hmm. um, a lot of women and things, and uh, we, we have fun. Um, and I've always been pretty casual about it. I'm, I'm not too super intense about it, but I, I like to compete and, and, you know, just have a good time and, and work on my skills and see how other people do things better than me. If we live closer, I'd join your club, although I tried writing a story about skeet shooting for the San Jose Mercury News, and he said I was the only one who's never hit a target. So I don't know what that means. I'm good at darts and terrible at guns. I don't know, but it's kind of funny. But I would love to actually join your club if you were close, if we were closer. There's different types of guns, too. So, you know, shooting a shotgun is very, very different than what I do with 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 lightweight pistols, you know, it's a uh, kind of a different style of shooting. You don't end up with bruises on your shoulder bones, collarbone. No, no. Okay. Um, so now we're going to jump into your Air Force. You were in the reserves for 15 years until two 2019 when you retired. Your latest role there was Section Chief Cyber Transport. How did you apply your technical skills there? And what is a cyber transport chief do? 
Yeah. So I, I, I had a lot of, I wore a lot of hats in the air force. Um, I actually was in the air force for 21 years and retired, um, as a master sergeant. So enlisted, um, I started out when I enlisted as a aircraft maintainer, fixing, uh, like back shop, fixing avionics. So aircraft computer systems, mostly I was doing soldering, fixing circuit boards, things like that back when that was still a thing, um, before everything was just, you know, hot swappable things you'd send back to the manufacturer. And I learned a lot about electronics there. I get a degree in electronics. Um, and uh, that would kind of started on my, me on my path of thinking about these non-standard computer systems and how they impact society and impact safety, health, things like that. Um, and yeah, so eventually, of course, because I wanted to do the same thing as I did in the reserves, as I did on the outside, I moved into a cybersecurity role in the Air Force. Um, because it's hard to keep up on a job one weekend a month um, that's totally different from what you do daily. So, um, you know, when you're in the reserves, you have more flexibility to change jobs and find where you want to go and find a mission that fits you. So I, I had some flexibility there and some connections to move into uh, an appropriate defensive cybersecurity role where I could apply my forensics knowledge and my incident response knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the thing about the military that a lot of people don't get is still in the government and the military, there's not a lot of ways to stay technical um, after a certain amount of time in the military. If you don't want to get, you know, pushed out, um, you have to move into a managerial role. Um, and that's kind of what you you end up in, the, in like, you know, the, the latter half of your career, at least if you're going to retire, um, you end up leading people, doing strategy, um, planning, man, uh, you know, taking care of uh, training, things like that for, for your people. So that's kind of where I ended up in the end, which is fun too. It's, it's all important. I like training people. We call that knowledge transfer. I'm in my sixties now and I do a lot of quote unquote knowledge transfer. Yep. We talked about some of your investigations at RSA. We couldn't get into them very deeply. But obviously, Dracos has been super active in a number of high-profile investigations that all make the news, including uh, Russian reports of cyber att- March reports of a Russian cyber attack on Ukraine power grid. Russian-developed Conti ransomware targeting automate automotive manufacturers and other big reports like that. Do ICS organizations need to be concerned about ransomware attacks originating from? any of these sanctioned countries like Russia, North Korea, and others that the Treasury Department has put on its watch list? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Of course, again, to clarify what I do for a living for the audience, uh, I do incident response. So when an industrial facility like a power plant or manufacturing or even a train gets hacked um, or gets compromised, gets infected with a virus, my team goes out and investigates what happens and what happened and tries to figure out how to resolve it so that things can get up and running safely again. And I divide the cases that we respond to these days into three broad categories, which are pretty equal. The first one is, of course, commodity stuff like ransomware. So mostly money, financial based crime, uh, typical organized crime type things, but it's sometimes it's state sponsored as well as you as you mentioned. The second category is insiders. So of course, the people who know how to cause the most mayhem in, in an industrial facility are the operators and engineers who work there. And unfortunately, there's a small minority of people out there who are willing to do bad things if they're upset at their organization or their boss or they're getting terminated, things like that. So 
we see that as well, as well as unintentional insider things, you know, where somebody just really wanted to watch Netflix. And so they disabled the security controls mm-hmm. so that they could, because it's late at night and they're sitting in a plant and they're bored. So, mm-hmm. you know, things like that happen too, and they can cause cybersecurity incidents as well. And then the final category, of course, is the state style adversaries and the, the people they hire, the contractors and subsidiaries that they, they have do work for them. And those are more like traditional espionage or sabotage against uh, industrial facilities. So a lot of foothold building for the future. So they're, they're getting their, their little claws in and they're, they're planning to be able to launch attacks in the future. And that's pretty scary. Uh, you know, that, that kind of intense foothold building makes it much easier and lightweight in the future to do something on a larger scale because they've already done the reconnaissance and the in, in the investigation and in the networks and they already have a way in, uh, even though they haven't used it yet. So it doesn't make the big, you know, major news. Sure, if they wanted to do something because of the geopolitical situation later on, now they've got their access and they've got their knowledge of the industrial system and they know which experts they need. So it really increases the potential for, for damage. How widespread is that, do you think, where there is backdoors and preset access into control systems? Is it bad enough to, if a state-sponsored actor wanted to, or whoever had this access wanted to, they could shut down entire grids, they could cause what we call the first step of a real cyber war? It's pretty complicated, really. I mean, there's, of course, three grids in the United States, and they are not deeply tied together. And then they're built up of a mod podge of, of different operators running different technologies, operating independently um, that are linked together. So to cause a mass disruptive effect is pretty difficult over a very, very large geographic area. It's very complex. It requires a lot of subject matter expertise and a lot of luck. However, a smaller area, absolutely. And it's not just power. We always think about power in the United States because that's the only utility we regularly lose in most Mm -hmm. of the United States. We're very privileged. We don't usually have like undrinkable water coming out of our faucets or no water coming out of our faucets or sewage coming up our toilets. That's not a normal thing we think about. So every time people talk about industrial cyber attacks in the United States, it's Americans always talk about the grid's gonna get taken down. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's scary. And yeah, in a smaller geographic area, it's possible with the things that adversaries are doing, the capabilities they're building. But at the same time, there's there's other scary things that they could do to other utilities as well that are less noticeable and flashy. We just don't think about them because those things don't normally happen to us. So that was a long-winded answer to, yeah, these, these adversaries are working hard to build their database of capabilities to bring down or tamper with all kinds of different utilities and manufacturing processes and transportation. They're working hard at that. They've been working hard at it for years. And that has increased their ability to do that in a rapid fashion. And it's lowered the bar to entry. And uh, it's not necessarily, oh my God, they're gonna take out power to the whole United States because that's really, really complicated and incredibly fantastically resource intensive. But did they cause a really bad day for a metropolitan area? Probably. That's actually how I frame it in book number three, which is coming up in my cyber thriller book. East Coast gets taken down, Paris and Beijing, very targeted. Uh, You know, however many utility providers are in that. Um, And I saw the same thing. It is enough to cause enough chaos 
mm -hmm. to really ruin someone's week weekend, whatever. The other issue you talked about were insiders. In 2004, I actually wrote an article about an operator who got fired from a Texas oil company. And before he left, he opened a valve that dumped oil into a Texas shipping channel. So this stuff on the insider side is really scary. Do you have any horror stories or what is the biggest concern around an insider? These facilities, I describe them as a crispy candy outside with a very gooey center. Once somebody's inside them, once they have access to the inside of those industrial networks and enough knowledge about how they work and the safety controls in them, they can do a lot of damage. Those, those two combinations of things, access and knowledge about how the industrial process really works, they can do a lot of damage. And those operators and engineers have that. Oftentimes they know the insecurities of the environment because again, squishy candy center, um, and maybe not an incredibly thick, crispy candy outside. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, in your corporate enterprise environment, there's usually some really strong controls for what you do when you terminate somebody. But if you have less cybersecurity knowledge of how your industrial environment is set up and how it's secured and how remote, remote access is revoked and provided, things like that, what accounts are shared, it can be much more difficult to cut off somebody's access reliably and quickly. And that means if somebody's unhappy and they were willing to do a bad thing in any condition, the consequences of them doing it in that industrial environment can be a whole lot worse. Yeah, I saw that when I wrote that article. It's pretty scary. Uh, based on recent news from Jagos, in fact, the pipe dream attack actually seems to consolidate most of the worst OT attack code and methodologies out there. Uh, can you explain how this impacts ICS systems or will? The article says it isn't widespread yet, but it sounds to me like when ransomware operators got really smart and started packaging everything they could in their ransomware packages. So if one security protocol protected against one thing, that's fine. They've got 16 other ways to breach the system all in one package. Is that what we're talking about here with Pipe Dream? So I mentioned earlier lowering the bar to entry, which is what a lot of adversaries are doing by doing reconnaissance and building footholds and networks. And something like Pipe, Pipe Dream is a tool set. Um, and we've seen this before in cybersecurity, nothing new under the sun, right? Mm -hmm. So we've seen these tools over time in cybersecurity that have made it out there into the universe. And once they're out there, you can't put anything back in Pandora's box. Mm -hmm. So some of those tools out there were like Metasploit that really made it easier to launch exploits against anything. Mm -hmm. um, so that changed the cybersecurity landscape massively and that lowered the barrier of entry. And then Cobalt Strike, which is another well-meaning tool that was used to build command and control channels and, you know, build footholds essentially in networks and control them. Mm -hmm. And that changed everything as well. It's, it's pervasive in the attack surface today. So this is another example of that where we've seen something made much more simple to, to make the barrier of entry into attacking industrial systems lower. It's not widespread yet, and we caught it. So, so people are aware of it, and that's good. But you're looking here, again, that kind of easy button, 
relatively easy button prepackaged set of tools to start attacking industrial systems and the cat's out of the bag. So once one person's done it, other people are going to leverage the same idea or the same technology or the same code and they're going to use it. So it's just stuff getting out of Pandora's box that are that is going to change the threat landscape and going to change the way that bad people attack industrial systems. Awareness is not enough either, because when I ran the SANS analyst program and we started writing on ICS security, and this was before Dragos was formed, but Rob Lee was one of our resources at SANS to talk about this stuff. It wasn't Rob Lee who pulled this out. It was someone before Rob. And we had refrigeration systems at dairies that we were finding online, IP addresses directly connected to the internet. And we it was a known vulnerability and as we reported from when we started the report to when we ended the report, even though it was a known vulnerability, the number of ice of dairy systems, refrigeration systems that went online with that vulnerability increased like fourfold in a period of two months. Wow. So knowledge, right? You've got ICS systems, they see pipe dream, that means they can get into your organization through a, a multiple amount of ways. I have the awareness. Does that stop me from doing the risky stuff I'm already doing? You know, it's very expensive to turn the bus around or the train around in ICS. Um, these environments have often been neglected from a cybersecurity perspective from a long time because it was too scary, too daunting, too under-resourced. There is oftentimes bad relationships between the, uh, the operational process team and the cybersecurity people on the enterprise side. Um, after years of miscommunication. So it's a very difficult problem to solve and it takes time and it takes resources and diplomacy and un mutual understanding of the problems that they face and the problems that we face. So yeah, the, the risk has not gone away until we tackle these big problems in every organization and that's tough. It is, ICS in particular. Um, let's switch to careers. You've been doing a lot of work getting young people interested in cybersecurity. And how are you doing that? And what's your advice for people wanting to get into this career, career field? So myself and a few colleagues and friends have been running career clinics around the United States where we go to cybersecurity and IT conferences and we look at people's resumes. We give them, we, set, we uh, use a volunteer base to set them up with one-on-one -on -one mentorship on their career path. And we give them advice on their interview skills, what they'll need to get into a cybersecurity job. And of course, those resources weren't available when we were getting into the field. So we certainly want it to be easier for, for the next generation to get into these into these positions. They're well-paying and we need people. Um, they're very interesting work, in my opinion. But yeah, so, so we've been organizing those. We've been going around the US doing those. And I think it's tremendously valuable. Uh, we're reaching to a lot of uh, underrepresented groups as well as veterans groups, things like that. Excellent. Well, I thank you for sharing your knowledge as you learn and help people navigate some of the roadblocks towards this career. I agree with you. There's lots of reports saying we're shorthanded. Criminals just keep getting smarter and cybersecurity teams and incident response teams are still learning the criminal behavior and probably will for our entire lifetime. 
but the more people we can get out there that know this, the better. I want to thank you for your time and for the audience. Thank you for tuning in. Watch for my next podcast from Beats channel with Renee Gutman. She was the former chief security officer for Campbell's Soup, Coca-Cola, some large cruise lines. And she has some interesting comments about supporting small and medium businesses that we'll be talking about in our next podcast. Until then, thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Beat Podcast with Deb Radcliffe, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share this channel and ITSPMagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.